Stop for a second and think to yourself, do you really know what's happening in your local community? The team at WUFT News works every day to bring you the most important and illuminating stories happening in North Central Florida that you need to know. But with so much happening across our nation, it's easy to lose track of what's happening right outside your front door. That's why we're introducing The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm Melissa Fato, a producer at WUFT News, and every week my colleagues and I will showcase the best stories from our newsroom from the past week. For the next half hour, we'll be talking to the reporters themselves to get to the root of the story and learn just what they're hearing and seeing in our community. Our first story comes from Marion County. Substitute teachers in Marion County were caught by surprise when they realized their pay had been cut from $100 a day to $70 a day. The Marion County School Board had decided to let the $30 emergency increase for substitute pay during the pandemic expire on June 30th. This resulted in pushback from the people who are working in classrooms when others can't. Producer Sarah Mandile spoke with WUFT reporter Lauren Cooney earlier this week about substitute teachers' reactions to this change and what will be happening next. Sarah starts by asking Lauren about the origin of the pay cut. In your article, you discuss how Marion County School District recently cut substitute teacher daily pay from $100 to $70. Why did that pay cut happen? So what originally happened was around April, uh, Marion County really needed substitute teachers. So they put sort of an emergency bill like in place in order to attract more subs to the area. And in that bill, they put that the pay would be $100 a day. So then June 30th, when that temporary action expired, they didn't renew it for the next school year. But what was interesting is that they didn't tell the substitute teachers who were in Marion County and signed on to be a substitute teacher with that pay. They didn't notify them that the bill had expired. And when I spoke to one of the subs, she actually told me that she called the employment center and asked why she wasn't notified. And they said that they updated the website. And she said that she wasn't in the habit of checking the website because she was already employed. So she didn't feel the need to. So that was interesting to me that there was no notification that the bill had expired. Since she wasn't notified, how did she find out? She found out on her first day that she went to go sub. She asked, hey, what's the pay? And they said $70. Like she was obviously blindsided and she was not happy about that. What were some other reactions of sources you spoke to um, when they heard about the pay cut? Um, one of the other substitutes that I spoke to, he straight up said that he would not substitute teach for that pay because he told me that he would get into the classroom at around 8.30 in the morning and sometimes leave as late as five. He said that it wasn't worth it to him to only make $70 a day when that would basically just be, it would be less than minimum wage in the state of Florida right now. How much does that end up being per hour? About eight sixty-five an hour. How does Marion County's substitute teacher pay compare to the pay in other counties? Um, well, 
what I mainly focused on for this story was former teachers because that was what was brought to my attention when I watched the school board meeting. Alachua and Levy County offer $100 a day for their uh, returning teacher substitute teachers and Citrus County offers $85 a day. So Marion County was at least $15 lower than surrounding counties. So at a work session last Thursday, a lot of, um, there was a committee working on pay, not just for substitutes, but for a lot of employees in the school district. And they worked out a new resolution that said that pay, substitute teacher pay, what they're proposing would go from $70 to $100. And then a continuing substitute with, is somebody who's working more than 10 days in the same classroom. So the pay for a continuing substitute would go from $85 a day to $115 a day. And then the pay for a continuing certified teacher substitute would go from $100 a day to $125 a day. So that's what they proposed. And I was told by the director of PR for the school board that it would be talked about at the board meeting in your article, you mentioned that one of your substitute teacher sources that you spoke with, Janice Cubbage, um, also spoke at that workshop meeting on August 24th. What did she have to say at that meeting? She is actually a city council member in Marion County. Um, so she came to the meeting, um, but she started off by saying, like, I'm here wearing my city council badge, but I'm speaking for a different purpose. She was talking about being a substitute teacher in Marion County and how she said that she was not only speaking for herself, but on behalf of all returning teacher substitutes because she knows their value in the classroom. And she went on and she gave a very passionate presentation to the school board, basically questioning them as to not only why weren't they told, but why can other counties afford to pay their subs more? And why can't Marion County offer the same thing? And she also, um, she brought up that when she works for a teacher, she doesn't just like go home and that's it. That's the end of her day. If she knows that she's going back to the same classroom, she'll work on lesson plans. She'll look on different ways to engage the students. She really is passionate about her job. And she said that she did not feel appreciated and that substitute teachers know their worth and that if they aren't paid accordingly she knows teachers who have substitute teachers who have left and who will leave did they respond to that and say why teachers weren't notified not exactly because at the meeting someone on the board said I know that there is a team working on pay in the county and then asked, he asked uh, the deputy superintendent to give an update on what the pay status was and when that would be ready. And in your article, another thing you mentioned is that the increase in pay could possibly bring back more substitute teachers to Marion mm -hmm. County schools. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? When I spoke to Janice Cabbage, she told me that one of the reasons why a lot of people joined in April to be a substitute teacher was because of the pay increase. And the other substitute teacher that I spoke to, Don DeWitt, 
told me that he would come back if there was a pay raise. So I'm, imagine that there are other substitute teachers in that uh, same mindset where they're just like, hey, if you pay me more, I'll come back, but I'm not gonna work for less than a minimum wage. Could you elaborate a little bit on the proposal that they'll be discussing? Yeah, so not only would the proposal sort of increase pay that was put into place, um, I went over like those numbers earlier, but it would be retroactive. So basically, anytime after July 1st, if you worked as a substitute teacher, you would you would get payback for the pay that you missed out on. So if you were getting paid on the, like, let's say you worked on the first day of school and you got paid $70 for that day, you would get compensated and get the rest of that paycheck after hopefully the bill is approved. That was Sarah Mandile speaking to WUFT reporter Lauren Cooney about a recent cut in Marion County substitute teacher pay. Since their conversation, Kevin Christian, the public relations director for Marion County Public Schools, has confirmed that school board members are expected to formally vote on a new salary schedule later this month. We'll be right back. People who work to make a difference here in North Central Florida are my guests on Tell Me About It. Hi, I'm Sue Wagner, and each week, I'm privileged to speak to some of the people whose efforts address the various needs of our growing communities. We're not really trying to push tennis as much as we are the power of sport and the power of mentorship. That's Tell Me About It on Sunday mornings at 7 here on WUFT 89.1 and 90.1 as a podcast on the WUFT app and online at WUFT.org. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. Let's move on to our next story about the fate of several correctional facilities in North Central Florida. Gainesville Work Camp could be closing soon. It would be the fourth in a string of state institutions closed in the last month by the Florida Department of Corrections. Producer Kristen Moorhead spoke with WUFT reporter Sydney Dotson about what this means for Florida's inmates. Sydney begins by explaining the reason for these closures. What it basically was about is the consolidation of prisons in the state of Florida. So there has been a lack of officers. And so they're taking the officers and the incarcerated people that they do have, and they're putting them from smaller institutions like the Gainesville Work Camp into larger institutions. What are they going to do with all of the people currently in the facility right now? Um, They're actually going to have to, if that does close down, they're going to have to move those people to a larger facility, and they're going to also move the correctional officers to different facilities. They say they're going to try to move them within the area so that they don't have to move or anything like that, but they didn't say the same thing for the incarcerated people. They did specifically say that the incarcerated people would not have a change of their incarceration status. So that means that they're not going to be letting anyone go early. They're, they're keeping people incarcerated and putting them into the bigger facilities instead of finding a different option. And this seems to be so in your story, you mentioned that there's three other state facilities that have closed in the last month. Why is this becoming more of a trend and what does it mean for Florida's incarcerated people? 
a lot of correctional officers are actually having a problem with the amount of money that they're being paid. So they don't think they're being paid enough. And so they are leaving and going to other organizations. So they're being trained by the state of Florida, but then they're leaving state corrections facilities because they aren't being paid enough for the work that they do. They did have longer hours before. They were working 12-hour shifts, and that has been reduced to eight-hour shifts during COVID, but they are still not being paid very much. They're being paid about $33,000 as a starting pay. And you mentioned COVID. How has COVID factored into this situation at all? I don't know if it has exacerbated any of the issues on the inside. I didn't get to ask that question, really. Um, I wanted to ask the Gainesville Work Camp officers about COVID and policies on the on the inside of the facility, but they weren't willing to comment for, on that for me. So I'm not sure how that has factored in exactly. All I know is that they're not being paid what they want to be paid, so they're leaving the force. And you mentioned getting some pushback from some of the officers in this work camp. Can you tell me a little bit about your process for reporting on this story? Like, what was it like reporting on it? So I pretty much started off with the basic things, trying to call the Florida Department of Corrections. I didn't really get where anywhere with that. I tried to call uh, Mark Inch. I, I called basically every office in the Florida Department of Corrections that I could And I either got transferred to someone who was supposed to help me and ended up being a dropped call or it was just a dropped call. There wasn't really any availability for me to even send a voicemail. Um, I sent an email to the the public relations team at the Florida Department of Corrections, uh, but they just emailed me back saying to kind of keep a lookout for press release statements. So it wasn't really anything specific or that I was looking for. And when I did contact the people specifically at the Gainesville work camp, I was transferred a couple times. People didn't really know what I was asking for or weren't willing to answer my questions and wanted to redirect me somewhere. And so after a lot of that and me just trying to find someone to talk to and them redirecting me just to the Florida Department of Corrections, I drove down there actually and I I walked up and they, I think someone was leaving or someone was being released and going home and there was an officer outside and I said, hey, I am, my name is Sydney Dotson. I'm a reporter for WUFT News and I have some questions just about the possible closure of this camp and how it would affect you and how it would affect, you know, the people that are incarcerated inside. And he kind of said, I can't do that. I don't do that. I don't make Um, public statements or I I can't speak for the Florida Department of Corrections. And so I I, I did push a little further and I was like, is there anyone inside that can talk to me or anyone that may have some information that I don't know about that I'm allowed to have? And it was immediately shut down and I had to go home with nothing. That sounds like a long and tedious process. Going back to COVID, I I know you mentioned in your story there are some concerns about transporting the the people from one facility to another in regards to COVID. Can you speak more on that? Yes. So I talked to um, the founder of the Legal Empowerment and Advocacy Hub. Her name was Jody Polk. And she said that she gets a lot of calls from incarcerated people trying to get legal help and trying to get legal advice from her because she has a lot of experience with helping and that's what her agency is about. And she said that a lot of 
people that are incarcerated right now are calling and saying that their symptoms are not being checked up on and that they're complaining of symptoms like throwing up and having a fever and coughing or having the chills and that they're not being treated and they're not being tested. And she said that she was worried that if people were transferred from a smaller prison like the Gainesville Work Camp or a smaller facility like the Gainesville Work Camp into a larger correctional facility, that they would be potential um, super spreaders of COVID-19. And she was also worried that people at the larger facilities may give people from the smaller facilities COVID-19 as well, because she thought, you know, if it's this bad at a smaller facility, maybe it'll be worse at a larger facility. So yeah, she was definitely worried that transporting these people, like a like a large group of people to a different facility where there are going to be a lot more exposures would be detrimental and would spike COVID cases in Florida prisons. Why did you decide to report on this story? Well, I saw an article about the closures of the prisons in Baker County and Bradford County, and there was one more that I am forgetting right now, but I saw that they had reported that the Gainesville work camp was about to be closed as well, or it was it was a potential closure um, because they were the Florida Department of Corrections released a statement saying that they were going to close and consolidate a lot of the smaller work camps. And so I wanted to do something that kind of I, I wanted to do something that kind of made the story a little bit more local. And so I decided to do it on that. And I knew that Gainesville had a lot of good nonprofit organizations or advocacy um, organizations like LEAH. So I really wanted to tell the story of the people that are in my local area. And is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, Not really. I just, I think one of the things that really stumped me with this one was just, I, I wish that the correctional officers and the Florida Department of Corrections could have been more accommodating, I guess. I, I think that they they assume that when the media come to them, we're coming to them with something that is going to be negative or it's going to reflect badly on them. But I, I really wasn't looking for anything negative. I was just looking for a statement or a timeline or anything. And the fact that I wasn't able to get many people on the phone at all seems like kind of a problem to me because then what if there is actually a huge problem and they we need to know information about it or or what if there's a problem within the Florida Department of Corrections that they want everyone to know about? There's, there's not going to be a lot of information getting out of there. That was Kristen Moorhead speaking with WUFT reporter Sydney Dotson about the status of Gainesville Work Camp. Sit tight. We'll be right back. Explore the history and culture of our state as the Florida Historical Society presents Florida Frontiers. Discover how history impacts our lives today as we travel to historic sites from Pensacola to Key West and all points in between. From native people to Spanish settlers to cracker cowmen and beyond, we examine the diverse heritage of the Sunshine State. That's Florida Frontiers presented by the Florida Historical Society. Sunday morning at 7.30 on WUFT 89.1 90.1. listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Finally, we bring you a very Florida story. 
An Ocala resident had a close encounter with a nearly 10-foot-long alligator in a local river. It led to a viral video and now an investigation into whether the alligator is safe in the wild. Producer Ariana Asparu spoke with Fresh Take Florida reporter Elise Elder about this story. Ariana begins by summarizing the events of the animal encounter. This past Labor Day, 60-year-old Florida resident Vicki Baker saw a large alligator approach visitors during her trip down the Silver River in Ocala, Florida. Two days later, on September 8th, she was again taking a leisurely paddleboard trip down the river when she was confronted by a familiar yet terrifying face. A nearly 10-foot-long alligator swam right up to her board, hissing and showing its large teeth. Her response? She shooed the alligator away with her paddleboard oar. The video she took during this encounter amassed over one million views since it was posted online, and the incident has now prompted an investigation into the alligator itself on whether it's safe for the public. So Elise, tell me a bit about this event. How did she find herself in this situation? Of course. Vicki Baker is a local resident of Ocala. She's traveled on this river many times. She's really familiar with the area, and she never experienced an encounter like this before. It was a Wednesday, September 8th. She was just paddling with some of her friends, and all of a sudden this large alligator, almost the size of a 10-foot paddleboard, came up to her. Go away! Oh my God, I had to push him away with my paddle. And was kind of looking curious, testing the water, coming even closer to the point where she felt threatened and hit him with a paddleboard or her. We don't know the gender of the animal. But <laughs> it came again closer to her after she had posted a video to Facebook, which got a lot of traction. It's actually gotten over a million views as we know right now. What are you doing? Get away from me. Get away from me. Um, an employee from the Silver Springs State Park had came by in a glass-bottom boat, and that's what she really thinks scared the animal off. He had told her to, you know, back away. He kind of probably scared the animal. So she exited the water, went immediately to the park rangers, showed them the video, and now there's actually a statewide investigation going on. Mm-hmm. And to go back to the, to the counter itself, what did like Baker have to say about it. I mean, despite seeing alligators throughout the state, and I feel like most Floridians have grown accustomed to seeing them almost daily, weekly basis, I think most people in Florida would still be terrified of the situation. It's hard to prepare for it. So what kind of was she saying? Oh, of course. Yeah, she was terrified. Like I said, she had never seen an encounter like this before. So it was kind of like instinct reaction. How do I handle this when I've never encountered such a large animal, especially when it's in its own habitat? And it's really got the commanding force over you. And when you're just on a paddleboard, you can't get away as fast as they can swim at you. And you don't really can't anticipate what it's going to, to do or react. So she was really scared. I mean, yeah, she even mentioned in the interview that her voice was shaky and she was she didn't want to hurt the animal or threaten it in any way that it would further endanger her or her friends. And in the video, you said uh, an onlooker advises her to back up because the animal was visibly mad, kind of. Tell me a little bit about what her reaction to the animal was. What what did she do? Oh, well, like I said, as soon as that glass bottom boat came up, told her, advised her, you know, you need to back from the animal. You probably made it bad. She immediately got out of the water with her friends. Her friends were in uh, kayaks while she was on the paddleboard and then went to the park rangers and showed them the video. In your research from this story, is that the preferred way to respond to an alligator of that size when it approaches you? Or what's what's someone supposed to do? 
Well, of course, you don't want to threaten the animal. You don't want to impose an action that's going to make it harm you or anybody that's in the water. I mean, it's obvious that when you go in the water, you're going to encounter the animals because that's their environment. Um, I had talked to CrocDoc. They had they said the behavior is really unclear. They're not sure yet what it indicates. They're looking into that further, as well as biologists from the FWC. But really just clear, stay from a clear distance with that animal, and that's really all you can do. Mm-hmm. And back to the alligator, the encounter happened, as you reported, near Florida's famous Silver Springs. The park has a no-swimming rule but allows paddlers with canoes and kayaks and things like that in the area, where animals like alligators, large turtles, manatees are all frequently seen. You reported that there's still not been a decision made as to what to do with the alligator, if they're even going to take action. But as you said earlier, an investigation has been launched through the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Can you elaborate on that? Why is there an investigation into the alligator itself? Um, Well, we want to make sure that the alligator doesn't potentially harm someone in the future. Um, The state really wants to know what took place through and through with the situation. They're going to interview witnesses to make sure that that alligator wasn't say, being fed, possibly. They, like I said, they don't know what the behavior indicated. So they just want to prevent further harm to public safety. Mm-hmm. I know you said you spoke to some wildlife experts for the story. What did they kind of have to say about the video? Yeah, I spoke to Sidney Godfrey. Um, he's a wildlife biologist at the Doc. He thinks that once you kind of get into an encounter with an animal that's in their environment, you kind of already know preemptively that that's their home. When you have an animal that's been around a lot of human encounters, you just kind of get instances that occur like that. Um, You just want to stay away. And like I said, experts don't know yet what the behavior indicates. Mm -hmm. Is there any timeline from the commission? Have they gotten back to you about when um, kind of a decision is going to be made on the fate of this alligator? No, I'm imagining that they're going to want to take action pretty quickly, considering that we don't want anybody to get harmed by the animal. Um, I'm going to follow up with FWC and see how they're going to handle it from here. Mm -hmm. And uh, what has Baker said about what uh, could happen to the alligator? She doesn't want to see the alligator killed. You know, like she said, she's been in this area all of her life. She's a native Floridian. Um, and she's never had an encounter like this, so she doesn't want to see the animal killed. Um, going back to the, the story, kind of how did you find the story, and what was the reporting process like? So I actually got past that story by my professor, Ted Brightis. We get stories as part of uh, our Fresh Takes Florida service, just through various amounts of uh, news organizations that we're a part of. We watch over, and professors throw ideas at us sometimes as well. Um, as soon as I picked up on the interest on the story because I saw how much traction it was getting online, I immediately tried to reach out to Baker via um, Facebook. I reached out to her son. I reached out. I even went to her house and door knocked, and she finally got back to me. We conducted the interview. I also reached out to CrocDoc to get an expert opinion, and then FWC and Florida DEC as well, just to see how the state was handling it. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the were there any struggles kind of reporting this story? Oh, she was extremely hard to get a hold of. It was a very um, exhilarating moment once we finally got to conduct the interview and I got to share her experience of what it really felt like to get up and close in front of that alligator. 
That was Ariana Aspidu speaking with Fresh Take Florida reporter Elise Elder about a local resident's wildlife encounter with a 10-foot alligator. Make sure to join us next Sunday when we'll be showcasing the best stories coming out of WUFT News. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Melissa Fato, Sarah Mandile, Ariana Aspidu, and Kristen Moorhead. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. I'm Melissa Fato. Thanks for listening.